Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another edition of The Secret Podcast. We're glad you're joining us for this very special episode, and I'm going to tell you, we've really outdone ourselves this time. This month, we're going to discuss one of the most popular cities in the world. It's known as the capital of the world, the city of dreams, the place that gave us Woody Allen, Bobby De Niro, Anne Hathaway, Liv Tyler, Billy Joel, Madonna, Mary J. Blige, Duke Ellington, George Gershwin, Sammy Davis Jr., Rodney Dangerfield, Eddie Murphy, Jerry Seinfeld, Willie Randolph, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Julius Irving, Michael Jordan, Vince Lombardi, Lou Gehrig, Alex Rodriguez, the list goes on and on and on. It's a city that never sleeps, the home of Macy's, Bloomingdale, Saks Fifth Avenue, and Tiffany, the home of Rockefeller Center, Carnegie Hall, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, CBGB's. It's the home of the Giants and the Jets, the Yankees and the Mets. Of course, I'm talking about the Big Apple, New York, New York. So nice, they named it twice. And who better to have on to discuss this with us than native New Yorker, experienced cask finder, and now part-time reality TV star, our teammate and good friend, Mr. Andy Abrams. But that's not even the tip of the iceberg. I also have my co-host George Ward, who, in case you didn't know, is a firefighter by day, and in the evenings he's a crime-fighting superhero on the Xbox. Now, last week we brought you an exclusive interview with Joe Ellen Trilling, and later in this episode we're going to be talking with another interesting person, photographer Ben Asen, who not only worked on The Secret, but also grew up with Byron Price. We're looking forward to talking with Ben about his work on the book, his own experience, and hearing a little more about the man himself, Byron Price. So there you have it, one guest who met the author and another guest who grew up with the author. If you're a fair folk junkie and part-time key searcher, it doesn't get much better than this. It's going to be a great show, so without further ado, please welcome George and Andy to the show. Woohoo is right. And uh, this month, we are, of course, as I said, discussing a puzzle that Andy is going to be very familiar with. And that's the one closest to where he's at, suspected to be New York City, image 12 and verse 10. Before we get into it too much, Andy hasn't been on the podcast for several months now. And I know the Expedition Unknown episode has definitely aired a few times since then. Have you been uh, recognized on the streets, sir? How are things going? Are you are you an international superstar now? Yeah, I can't get to my car from, it's on my driveway in the morning without beating off 10 or 15 people or seeking autographs. Just kidding. Yeah. Uh, but I will tell you one funny thing. I was on vacation last week. We were in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea on a boat. My phone rings and it's like three o'clock in the morning. I have no idea what's going on. But who's calling me? I'm in the Mediterranean site. I pick up the phone. It's a guy I know from my town. I don't know, God, something happened. My house burned down. Why is he calling me? So I pick up, I said, hello. He said, I, and he happens to own a memorabilia store, a sports memorabilia and pop culture stuff. So he said, Andy, I said, he goes, I need a hundred photos with signatures. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I was sitting home tonight and I heard a voice on the TV. And I said, I know that voice. He turned to the TV and I guess they were rerunning the episode from the Travel Channel. He goes, I had no idea you're a treasure hunter. Oh my God, the story. I went to buy a book. Do you know how expensive they are? He goes, I want to get, I said, I'm, I'll be happy to autograph a picture. I'm, 
on the Mediterranean Sea about to get to Tuscany. He was so embarrassed, but every now and then it does pop up. The best is when I'll be in court and the judge will say, uh, he'll sidebar, say approach. And he goes, any new, uh, any new work on the uh, treasure hunt? And I laugh because you never know who in Rome is an armchair treasure hunter. It makes me laugh. So they rib you about it in court. I, That's <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about the cliche, older, you know, uh, uh, old school judges. I'll get in a, can you approach? Sidebar, and I'll walk, I think it's about the case, and I'll say, yeah, and they'll say, um, anything new on the New York? <laughs> and I laugh my head off. I go, oh, that was unexpected. So, no, not much new. So I guess the most important question of this podcast is, Mr. Abrams, how much is a signed headshot? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy, a cup of coffee at Dunkin' Donuts, right. (laughs) All right, well, moving on to the New York versus image here. There's a lot of stuff going on in the image, and there's a lot of ambiguity going on with trying to spot these things in different places. Some people believe that there's an icon to park via path theory, Um, good luck finding an icon amongst the city of iconic things. As far as we have found, it entails a laundry list of loosely related clues, but some stranger things. As far as immigration is concerned, here we have a Russian theme. We're in New York. Typically, my first thought would be Italian, but uh, apparently they didn't cover Italian. Mark says they left the Italians out of the immigration theme, and we have a Russian theme here. And this is another uh, in a long line of immigration themes like the Irish in Chicago and not Boston and the Dutch in Montreal and not the French being there, which don't make a whole lot of sense. We may have to consider that some of these themes going on might be pieces of a puzzle and no more, not related any deeper to the city or the treasure hunt itself, uh, with no need or reason other than to just provide a piece of information for the hunt. The same as the month of February. It's not any special to Milwaukee in any way. It's just February. It's just a piece of information. There's a lot of ambiguous things when you're talking about a city full of iconic things. Andy, when Byron told you guys when you met him that the cultural connection was important, we have to consider this Russian theme going on in New York. Are You're a native New Yorker, are you not? Yes. So do you know New York to be specifically Russian in nature? No, well, there's, I mean, it is the melting pots of melting pots, right? So it, Right, it's everything. And think about Byron's background. His family came across uh, and landed on Ellis Island, and I believe, if I remember correctly, they were Russian Jews. It would make sense, if I'm correct in my memory, that there would be a connection to that Russian piece of history because many Jews emigrated to leave during the pogroms or during that period, and they came to this country as immigrants from Mother Russia. So I'm sure, especially moving to the Lower East Side or then to Brooklyn, had a very strong Russian influence. So that's why you could do Italy, you could do China, little Chinatown, you could do any... Right, that's what I'm saying. It's a melting pot of everything. If you look at it from his particular perspective, the single culture that he was bringing to New York was from his own experience, and that was the immigration of those Russians that came to this country and became new citizens here. That's where I think it would come to play. And I wouldn't deny that. I guess what I'm getting at is I think a lot of people get tripped up on trying to tie what they feel Byron's personal feelings would be towards a clue or what some other personal feeling or action 
to a clue based on history locally or otherwise. Sure. And I think that sometimes maybe we should just be looking for clues as clues, just just words and pieces of information that aren't specifically tied too heavily to anything. So if there's not a strong Irish connection in the city of Chicago or with the city of Chicago. Maybe it doesn't matter that that clue was to give a specific piece of information, just like in New York there's a clue to give out a specific piece of information. Maybe he needs to give out a specifically Russian clue. We don't know how the cultural connections are important to the puzzle, so it's really hard to determine what's going on. But if you just looked at it from a puzzle standpoint, you know, that what I really wanted to get into with this episode, and I'm not going to go ahead and lay out the verse and talk about the image and all the things that you see. I mean, I think people are pretty well familiar with the image and the verse, and they can take a look on their own and look at the things that we're discussing here. Just to talk a little bit about the Central Park Dilemma. This is something that we've been discussing in our group a little bit. We have a credible source telling us Byron Price says there's no treasure in Central Park. But wasn't that also the case with the guys from Chicago at first? Right. From an article in the Chicago Tribune, August 9th, 1983, the three guys who found the Chicago cask reported that when they called Byron Price's office, seemingly in July of that same year, and Byron Price's secretary told them that there was no treasure in Chicago, they then called back the next day and talked to BP himself, and he said, why, well, you're in the right spot, I don't see why you can't find it. Then, fast forward to 2004, May 23, 2004, we have an email from Byron Price sent to a searcher who passed it on to Fox, who then posted it on Q4T, regarding a possible cask buried in Central Park, and the response to this inquiry was, and this is from Byron himself, quote, unquote, there is no treasure in Central Park. What are we to believe here? Do we not look in Central Park because of the email? Do we just pass it by? Do you think it's a fruitless venture to look there? I mean, what are your thoughts on this? I think it is absolutely not in Central Park. I think it's the first place you would think of. It makes so much sense. I think the photographer, Ben Aston, I know, had mentioned they spent a lot of time shooting pictures in Central Park. I remember for a time period, I was obsessed with the idea. There was a lot leading to Columbus Circle and the entrance to Central Park, and then there was some imagery in the water showing what looked like a dancing bear that was on the head. I mean, there was so much, and it pointed towards Central Park. Whether it was in or on the periphery, maybe the play on words is it's not in Central Park, it's on the periphery, I'm not sure. And there's pictures of the statues at the entrance to Central Park on Columbus Circle. At the same time, he's telling you it's not in Central Park. I think you have to take it at face value. It's not the secretary saying it, it's him. Hey, look, he probably wanted these found, right? I mean, the idea was the more that were found more publicity for the book, I suppose. And then he could do the second book, right? Sure. So why say in an email that was being circulated, it is not in Central Park? It's not even cryptic. Yeah, unless he wanted to say, look, don't waste all of your energy and time searching there. He didn't say it's not in New York. He just said it's not in Central Park. So I, I mean, I don't know what you guys think, but I would, when I saw that email, any thought of searching within the confines of the park, not the perimeter, I think that's still in fair play. I don't think it's, there's anything within the park itself. What do you think, George? I kind of have this feeling that 
unless you had a relationship, a sort of ongoing correspondence with Byron, that you, if that was just a one-time email, like if someone sent an email saying, hey, I think it's in Central Park or whatever, and you just got a response that said it's not in Central Park, I wouldn't put too much into that because it could be the secretary. It could have been Byron having a bad day. It, it could have been a lot of things. If that was just a one-time email, and we don't know the question that was asked before the response. We don't know if that was a, an email that, that read like it was sent by a crazy person. We don't know the context of that email. And since it was just a single email, I don't put as much faith into it as most people do, I think. So you still think it might be in Central Park? I don't think it's in Central Park, but but I, <laughs> but I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm just to be fair to answer the question. He's saying you, I, I wouldn't rule it out either because yeah. it seems like there yeah. may have been just a party line that was given to all the employees. And let's rewind a couple of years ago when were you down at the Fountain of Youth with Brian for the other documentary? For the other one, now, now I watch it. As the story goes. A Hail Mary phone call was made to John Palinkar during a dig in Georgia's backyard at the Fountain of Youth. The line was that uh, they were calling to get a little help on trying to locate the cask. And John Palinkar says, we'd have to ask Brian. I don't know what the uh, exact line was, but it was either John said there's no treasure in St. Augustine or he said there's no treasure in the Fountain of Youth. I mean, I'm just wondering if that's just a party line. That's the debate here is is not whether there is a cast there or not is is was that a party line and and do we pay that any attention? That's interesting. That is a very interesting point. I received that information as so helpful. The New York one is so expansive, right? Like you guys have done such exhaustive work on every one of these. I don't think there's one that is more expansive. Maybe it's because it's the last picture in the book. Maybe because it was closest to home. Maybe it's because it's the one, you know, born and raised in New York and he really wanted to make this the grand finale. Maybe it's because it's the one because it's got the Statue of Liberty's face in the picture and it ties all of the immigration together. So there had to be great importance. But there are so many theories and so many different ways it could go that when it, I thought he ruled out Central Park, I was like, thank you. I mean, thank you for taking one off the books because it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. No, it's on a whole different level. You have clues. Not only do you have a hard time trying to recognize what the icon could be, Matt and I were in a discussion today about it, and he says, well, what could be more iconic than the Statue of Liberty? And he had mentioned the Statue of Liberty and Alice Island looking like the doorway. Then I brought up, well, there's the actual immigration building, which is across the street from Battery Park, is what our window is modeled after. We have the Empire State Building, which could potentially be a match for one of those eagle heads. There's eagle heads on the Ellis Island building. There's eagle heads on all kinds of bridges and monuments all throughout Central Park, Battery Park. Right. All kinds of parks in New York, you can find them all over. It's not like the leg eater lamp in Montreal, where we've only found a handful of them. What is our icon? Clues are all over the place. You have what looks like the shape of Staten Island on the bottom of the dress, but then you have matches which potentially go to things in Manhattan. You have a place in Manhattan that you may be able to dig, but then you have a clue in the verse that's sending you to the birthplace potentially of George Gershwin. Right. So he's got you running all over five boroughs, and the clues don't seem to link up. The only solid clue, and I'll run this by you guys and see what you think. 
The only solid clue that I can look at in one of those panels and say, pretty sure that this is what this is, is the St. Nicholas Russian Orthodox Church on 97th Street. Ironically, 97th is the street that crosses through Central Park, not unlike the way Crossover Drive and the uh, San Francisco puzzle work. But if you look at those spires from the street standing right in front of the cathedral, the, the uh, church, they match up to that small panel. Now, I can't get that to connect to the window in Battery Park or to Staten Island or to anything else. It's all over the place. What have you found, Andy, walking around? I mean, you've been to other places other than Central Park. Have you have you noticed clues all over the place? Yeah, and what you say is so right. When you said it's spread out over five boroughs, that's the most maddening part because it's not like you can walk one area and try to make everything fit. You've got to go all the way up to 97. Like, I've stood at that church. I've been there on 97. I've looked at it, and I'm convinced that those spires are not Ellis Island. You talk to a newbie, you know, it's like, oh, my God, it's Ellis Island. I said, it's not Ellis Island. I don't, I don't think it is at all. It's a pretty great match. There was, I know, a church, you guys will remember better than me, there was a church out in Brooklyn that was a Greek Orthodox, I think, right? That also appeared to be a Danon match. Yeah, it had four spires around, four corner spires. Yeah, I remember that. Correct, and it was pretty close. But when you looked at the one on 97th, it was, and it was Russian, and so it fit, and it made those onion domes made a lot of sense. But how are you getting from all of these other clues up to 97th Street. How does it make sense? Because there's not a whole lot more there that fits in that part of the neighborhood. So it leads me away from that, and I try to look for an aggregate of clues. To me, in this one, I actually just sent you a photograph, not that it works on this podcast, but I was in court in New Jersey, and there was a mural behind the judge I just think you'll find fascinating. It's of Lady Justice, and she's standing over the water, and she's wearing almost identical robes to what's pictured here. I was in court one day recently, and I almost had a heart attack when I saw it. And I looked through every book I could think of to see, is this a famous image, or are we overlooking this? To me, though, the biggest clues in the, in the illustration, not looking within the robe to see what you could see or within the waves, were that particular bird of prey, that seagull, and as many statues as you find, when you're down at the base in lower Manhattan and you're looking at the warm monument down there, you're looking at the different... To me, the head of that bird is the head on the Chrysler building, those Gothic buttresses that are coming out. It is such an identical batch that I just can't get past that. And I know then for me... It's very odd about that bird. The beak in the eyes, that's what it was. And it's crazy because the beak matches up to the bird on the uh, on Ellis Island, but the eyes match up to the bird on the Chrysler building. Yes. And what, what do you do? I remember walking around Lower Manhattan years ago. I think it was with Brian, actually. We went out one day to the Statue of Liberty, to Ellis Island. We were on Ellis Island and said, it can't be here. I don't care what the lax security was. You're not digging on Ellis Island couldn't happen. So we went back to Lower Manhattan. We're walking around and we're trying to match things up. And I was fascinated with the bird's head. And ultimately I was most fascinated with those three color panels of those those uh, bubbles. I know some people say it's a colorblind test. Other people, I remember standing next to Lower Manhattan seeing the mural of Peter Minuet saying, are they baubles? Is that what he traded the Indians for Lower Manhattan? Like, to me, why would the artist dedicate three panels out of one, two, three, four, five, about eight or nine 
to that image. You've been stewing over this for quite a while. John, forever, because I feel like either I would be standing in a spot, I know somebody found a picture of a church, I ran all the way to the church, it's off of Columbus Circle, I can't remember what it's called now. St. Paul's, St. Paul's. Is that the one? Yeah, I went inside, I remember the, the poor woman was working there, I said, hi, I'm uh, a friend of mine got married a few years ago. I was just wondering if I could go to the cathedral for a minute. And she let me in, and I looked at the windows, and I went, oh, my God, baby, maybe that was it. But then I remember being in Prospect Park under a gazebo, and you looked up. It looked like it was an old bumper car area. It's nothing, but the colors matched. The same purples and yellows were all over the walls. And when you look up, there's a stained glass at the top of this thing you would never see from the outside, and it had these little baubles in it. And I said, oh, my God, is this it? Now I'm in the middle of Frostwick Park in Brooklyn. Um, but I feel like, it, I felt like for a long time, there would be a point at which you were standing and you would see this stained glass or you would see something that you would know, okay, it's got to do with this. I will say one thing for your broadcast, I don't know how well known this is or not, and you guys may know it, I don't know. When we were filming the episode, and I know they were talking to Palancar, they, they asked him questions and they said, oh, ask him about those little bubbles, ask him about those panels, it's driving me insane. He was, of course, very tight-lipped. Josh was talking back and forth with me at the time, and he said that Palancar did say that there was something about those panels that had to do with size ratio of those circles within them. And then when he created them, he remembered saying something to Byron, like, look at this, and Byron saying, oh, John, that's really hard. But he was very proud of the fact that there was something about the puzzle within the puzzle that had to do with the size ratio of those circles. Now, you guys are way smarter than me. I still haven't been able to figure out what that means, but clearly something was going on there that is either a map of some sort, an overhead of some sort, whether it spells out something, I haven't been able to figure it out. There is something in those panels, and the way that I pick it out, and I stared at it so many times, <laughs> the way that I can pick it out is it seems like all of the same or similar colored dots seem to blend into the background, whereas the bigger dots stick out and kind of form a, it's almost like a 3D image that pops up. But I have stared at that thing until my eyes have gone blind and I cannot extrapolate any kind of number, image, letter, nothing out of it. Not yet. Yeah, when you look at this and you think, well, the artist took so much time to create not one panel, but three, three. Why would he spend three of those precious panels on that imagery I just can't figure it. I feel like the person who unlocks that will unlock the biggest clue to this illustration. There's three pieces of information there. There's got at least one piece, you would think, but probably three pieces of info there. George, you tried to mess around with 3D glasses, did you not, on this? Yeah, somebody asked me to mess around with 3D glasses with it, but I couldn't, I couldn't get that to work, obviously. There was a rumor a while back that JGP said, during the shrinking of the paintings for the book and the colors that were used in the printing, that whatever was in those panels, it didn't really work. You couldn't get the clue that was there anymore. I gave that painting to a friend of mine who does pattern cryptography. That's his job. He said the closest he could come up to, to anything with it was he started counting them. And he thinks that you have to separate the dots by size, and then if you count them, you can get the latitude and longitude, maybe? He said that's about as close as he could come to any sort of answer on that. I think, George, it's so cool that you have a friend 
<laughs> just happens to specialize in pattern cryptography. Yeah, I've got a lot of weird friends. <laughs> I was in very helpful when you do what you guys are doing. So the other thing I will, when you match the verse and I remember again, sometimes, right? Like it's obvious you have to, to keep it simple, stupid. Like you look at what it is. I, I remember the other thing that has driven me crazy about this forever and ever is that one line. And I'm looking for the, or the, the actual verse now, um, the name of still speak of him of hard word and three balls. I had found an old post of Brian's that he had put up regarding that specific line. And I was just looking at it today. And he had mentioned that he felt that it could be some sort of off literary reference to hard times by Charles Dickens. Yeah. When we first started looking at this puzzle, I did a ton of research on Dickens for hard times. You know, when you come across another piece and you get goosebumps or the hair on the back of your neck stands up, we said, wait a second, Dickens came to America and he made his way to Niagara Falls, but before he did, and so you see the water at the bottom, and so you, oh, Niagara Falls, maybe it was Toronto or something. But the first place he stopped and the first place he became interested in in America, if memory serves, was the Five Corners. That was the basis for the the movie about oh the gangs in New York. You got it, you got it. And he was fascinated, which is the Lower East Side. And then it went further, right? If I can again go back in my memory now, but he then visited the uh, insane asylum or the hospital, right on the island that runs underneath the um, Roosevelt Island. Ro Roosevelt Island, I think. Yeah, he lived. I remember speaking to the daughters. They lived right next to or a block from the UN when they were growing up. This was from the girls. The tram car that ran, it was the only one of its kind. It, it, I think it opened in 1980, I mean, timing-wise, and it was a way to get on and off to that island. Uh, I remember saying to one of the daughters, to, to, to the lady, she's, oh my God, he loved that. When it opened, it was such a big deal. And the timing of it kind of worked, and it took you to, I guess it's Roosevelt Island, right? And maybe was that the whirring sound in the summertime, you know, you hear the whirring sound of the cars that abound because these tram cars. So again, that takes you away from lower Manhattan and up to, and then is that block in the picture, the UN building, because he was right there. That's where they grew up. And outside their window, you could see Roosevelt Island. So it, it got me started thinking about that area. But if I trace it back to lower Manhattan, because I want to stay in the theme of driving yourself crazy, uh, try to just stay within the borough of Manhattan, right? When we walked around the Lower East Side, Brian and I were focused on that because of the Dickens reference. And then there's the there's a tavern down there with a plaque that talks about a, a West Indies native. Mm. There was a placard that we came across, remember, some people talked about, that talks about this is the birthplace of Herman Melville. It's such an odd thing. It's on the side of what's now a condo or some office type building. It talked about Melville. And I remember researching it and Brian said, Wayne, when uh, he published Moby Dick, right. it was first published in three volumes. And is that the three balls? Because it talks about Melville. And there is a spot, and this was my moment where I kept coming back to the, that Lower East Side and the, the tip of Manhattan, when you turned up Broadway, and I, I think I've talked to you guys about this before, and everybody's got their own pet theories. The aisle. Yeah. The aisle of B. And I looked down the aisle of B, and I thought A-I-S-L-E, right? The aisle of Broadway. Because as you look down, 
as you stand in front of where they look at the stock market bowl is and where the Hamilton building is, okay. as you look down the aisle of Broadway and goes back to Gershwin, wraps it in soil, all that, if you look directly in front of you, there is only one image that you see in the distance, and that is the Chrysler building. It stands out and is on the horizon line, and it's in between. It kind of both the aisle drifts, your eye takes you to that point, and I, I bring it back to that bird. And I say, those heads, and not that they're visible without binoculars from I mean, but it just all tied together to that spot so nicely that how could he draw you there and not deliver by trying to bury something there? The Staten Island Ferry, the whirring sound in the summertime. Yeah. You know, by- I do like that for the whirring sound. The other whirring sound that we know about are, of course, the helicopter tours that happen leaving from the lower side of Manhattan. Yes. How do you reconcile so much putting you in that spot where you can see vantage points, so many places, and then saying, okay, leave there and go to 97th Street, or leave there and go to Brooklyn, or leave there and go to, to Staten Island by the Verrazano? Oh, there are a lot of things to see in Battery Park. That's really the only place where there are a couple things that kind of tie together. There's the Verrazano statue, there's the window on the immigration building, there's the Hamilton Customs House, and you have a few other things that are not so much of a stretch to make work some statues and some other things down there. It's really the only place, but then you have to contend with these riddles about him of hard word, and you have to contend with the fact that there's no steps. There's a lot of inconsistencies in this verse, trying to apply it in that location based on the evidence that we feel we have for other verses, like in Boston, where he tells us to take five steps, well, that actually means five blocks. So does it mean the same here or not? Some of the problems with this verse, and, you know, I don't want to take up too much time because we have a long interview with Ben Asen that we're going to air coming up here shortly. You can check on this on your own. The V and the B, classically, since we know Chicago, the initials were all last names in Chicago, every single of one of those four single letters, they were last names. So the B and the V would be expected to share a similar likeness, a right. be of right. similar ilk or similar nature or something. But you have one thing that's capital letter, one thing that's a small letter. So there's that problem there. There's the Rhapsodic Man's Soil, meaning uh, if it does mean Gershwin, then it would mean Brooklyn or not. Does it mean, who knows? It, it could be one of those things where you just have to be there. The Great Giant, we still don't know what that is. It's a real mystery. George, do you have any ideas on uh, on any of this stuff? I've heard so many, so many random things about New York. New York is weird because it is the melting pot of so many things and so much is there, so many different architecture types, so many different types of buildings and monuments and statues to so many different things and plaques, parks and everything's so spread out, but you can really go to anywhere in New York and find something from this painting, something that looks like the painting. I fall back to everything's got to be just like it was in Cleveland or like it was in Chicago. You can't pick and choose, like Andy was saying, one thing from this side of the city and, and another thing from, you know, this other borough. Everything has to make sense right there. And it's finding that one spot. It's got to make sense too, right? Some of these things are probably riddles that are giving us pieces of information that we need to use instead of what the riddle is. People take those things literally. It's very hard to figure out where we should be when we only have a handful of things that we can even be certain of. And one of those is not how to do the puzzle. 
The thing that I go back to to that point is in Chicago with Fence and Fixture. Had the guys not found Chicago when they did, if we didn't know how Chicago worked, Fence and Fixture would sound like such an odd clue. There would be all kinds of, oh, this is a bound. This is trying to keep you into a certain area. It's fixating you on one thing. And Absolutely right. When you know, oh, there's a fence and a fixture. Like, it, it makes sense where it is. There was very little wordplay going on in Chicago. It was one of the more straightforward puzzles. The puzzle you had was, well, a letter-solving game, and there wasn't really that much clever clues being presented in that verse. I feel like New York's going to be the same. When somebody finds that spot in New York, they're going to look and go, oh, him of hard words and three vols, that means that. And I feel like they're going to have that, I've talked about it before, I feel like they're going to have that moment where they go, this is dumb. <laughs> I feel like they're going to have that moment. Like, why didn't anybody think of this before? Well, there is no question. You may as well put this on my tombstone if it's never solved. The natives still speak of him of our word in three balls. Just the three balls, the use of the number, the capital V in balls, volunteers, why did he make it B-O-L-S, period. You take that capital V and you compare it to the small V when you look at the on the V when you compare it to the capital V at the end. It's that sentence, just like Socrates, Pindar, uh, Apelles, and he right, was the crux sentence. If you find those four names together, you knew you were at the wall in Cleveland. That sentence... The, the speaker of him of hard word in three balls is the entire puzzle. The yep. person who figures that out will know exactly where to be. Exactly. More more than anything else. And it is fascinating to me that with the internet, with guys like you who have been through this thing up, down, left, right, sideways, right? With such brain power, we still can't crack that line. I can't believe it. I can't believe someone hasn't you know, yeah, is it like Rosebud? Like, I just don't get how nobody, nobody can crack that line. Because when it does, that was dumb, or that aha moment of the century. I just can't believe no one has been able to come up with something and go, yep, that's it. You got it. That's the thing. Because that's the key that unlocks the lock that lets us work up for everything else. I bet at some point somebody's going to be standing looking at some obscure plaque on a wall somewhere, you know, that's not important. And it's going to have plain as day, whatever hem of hard words and three vols is. I bet that's what's going to happen. Somebody's going to be, you know, depressed and just wandering down the street in New York and they're going to look to their right and they're going to, oh, that's what. The it could be. But the problem with New York that we face that we're not facing with a lot of others, except for maybe Montreal and not even there, is if you look at every one of the other cities that haven't been found, we're at least in a area of the city that we feel fairly confident that we're in the right spot. In Boston, we seem like we're kind of in the right spot. In Charleston, we feel we're pretty close. In Manteo, we know we're on the right island. In St. Augustine, we know we found the right park. In Houston, Mark's found all that. In San Francisco, we found a couple spots, but I would say you could probably put that one in this category too, but all the rest of them, we seem to have a fairly good spot to be looking at, and we still can't find them. We're gonna try. We're gonna find New York. Come on, it's a whole nother animal, man. Does it make sense that he would have wanted that to be the piece de resistance that he would have wanted to end with the grand finale? That you're gonna solve this one because this is my hometown. I was born and raised here. I'm gonna make this one extra. Like, do you guys feel that this is 
a particularly difficult one. Not just but possible. Yes, I do too. Well, I feel like everything he brought in here. I feel like if you, Andy, were going to make this puzzle and you were going to go around to a bunch of different cities, right? Cities that you're not super familiar with. You maybe have been there a couple of times, but you don't, you didn't grow up there. You're going to go to a park. You're going to find a place and you're going to write your clues. You know, you're not going to know the ancient history of the city or whatever. You're going to write based on what you see. Him having lived in that city for his entire life, he knows history. He remembers things from his childhood, little obscure facts obscure plaques, uh, you know, parks that he played in, whatever. He's going to know details that some guy in St. Augustine, I'm never going to know. Yeah, you're going to find a better hiding spot in your own house than you are in someone else's house. I agree. Fantastic point. Absolutely correct. Yeah, they decided that he wanted to make it harder. It's just by definition, as you just said, he has to make it harder because he just knows the spot so well. That's interesting. And, and that's why it's not certain things... Man-made disasters are buried over gorilla pits in Houston. Man, it's out there and it's reachable. It is just going to take either, you know, somebody's boyfriend, girlfriend's going to look and go, oh, what about this? You know, that isn't even committed to this, that just comes across something. We're standing in the right spot, as you said, George. It may come by luck. I almost feel like there's got to be a little bit more luck on this one because so many eyes have looked this over. And the fact that it still escapes some of the most brilliant minds on this that I, I can even think of, Byron was very bright. But, I mean, between the two of you and the guys you work with, and the people like, nobody can crack that line. It's not just me and George. Matt works on this. You have Brian. Everybody. I know. I'm talking about everybody. This is the riddle of the Sphinx. That's what this line is to me. Well, that'll be our challenge for you listeners. If you want a puzzle that's going to take up a lot of your time, try New York because we don't even, we can't even be sure of a park that it's in for this city, <laughs> let alone a, a dig spot or even an area of the park. And many, many have been gone over. Not even a park. We can't even agree on a borough. You're right. It's, it's a very, very difficult. So let's not take up too much time. I know Ben's waiting for us. Andy, will you stay on with us to chat with Ben? I would love it. So right now, we'd like to welcome to the show a man who has been a photographer his whole life. He's been working professionally for over 25 years in New York. His client list is extremely impressive, including Random House, Simon & Schuster, St. Martin's, Fox Rothschild, Mutual of America, IBM, United Way, University of Pennsylvania. The prestigious list goes on and on. And a long, long time ago, in a galaxy not so far away, he was the photographer for the book we are so enamored by, The Secret, A Treasure Hunt. I'd like to welcome to the show Mr. Ben Asen. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thank you. Thanks very much. You specialize in event, corporate, nonprofit, editorial, and portrait photography. Now, are you sure you wanted to narrow your field of specialty down that much? <laughs> I'm sort of like an, inter like an intern. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we'll get into talking about the work you did a long time ago and Byron and everything, but let's just talk a little bit about your work for now. Okay. What kind of shoots do you enjoy doing the most and for what reasons? Because you've done this a long time. I mean, after, it seems like you have a lot of passion for what you do, and after meeting and studying people through a lens for over 25 years and getting to know all the personality types of people and dealing with every climate and circumstance you can think of on the job. You know, how do you keep it interesting? What do you like to do? What keeps you going? 
Well, one of my big interests, really, and it's always been one of my big interests, is just walking the streets of New York City and early in the morning, late in the afternoon, at night, just seeing what's there. And if it interests me, I take the photograph. I'm working on a project now, actually, on water towers in New York City, which is pretty unique to New York and a few of the cities in America. I love shooting people. I used to love doing portraits. I don't love doing portraits as much as I have in the past because I think with the iPhone and with digital photography, nobody wants to give you any time anymore. I used to spend an hour with the subject. If I get five minutes, I'm really lucky. How has uh, technology changed the whole game? As you said, with the iPhone coming out, everybody's a photographer now, and there's apps that make the photos look right. And I, I notice you spend a lot of time on light and shadow and making colors really pop out in your photos. Do you have to drive at new techniques or new things to keep that separate from what somebody can do with their own phone? When people ask me the difference between film photography and digital photography, the pan answer I always give is with digital photography, they want the photograph before I take it. Everybody wants things quickly. I still like to shoot like I'm shooting film, even though I'm not shooting film. I take my time. To me, the light, it's all about the light. It really is. You could take a picture of a fire escape, and depending on the light, it's going to look very different. I like early morning light. I like late afternoon light. I don't like midday light too much. The thing with digital is a lot of people now, they'll shoot like 500 images of the same thing. And they'll say, well, you know, one of them's got to be good. When we shot film, we didn't have a screen in the back of our camera. We had to really take our time and make sure that the photo was going to be right. If there's something that you learn over time doing what you do in your craft and coming from an analog standpoint, other than light, I mean, I'm sure you can see certain light and kind of know how it's going to come out on a piece of developed paper after doing it for a long time. As far as shooting subjects, can you anticipate certain things? Because if you're shooting digital and you, like you said, you take 500 and of course one of them's going to be fine. But when you didn't have that capability, could you develop any kind of instinct for anticipating things with subjects? Or is that kind of a skill? I know nothing about photography, so. I don't know if it's a skill. It's just something that you're born with. I could be with someone and photograph them. And even if I'm photographing them at a podium and they're making a speech, and I photograph some pretty well-known people, I sort of anticipate how they're going to make a hand gesture, who they're going to look at. And this is taking time. I didn't learn this overnight. I'm not embarrassed to say I've been this over 40 years, okay? So I've been doing this a long time. I used to tell people that I used to work for Matthew Brady, the Civil War photographer. <laughs> but... It's something you learn. And you know what? I'm still learning. I am still learning after all these years. And if you're not learning anything else about photography, then you're not really doing your homework and you're not really learning your craft. Do you think that digital photography is sort of a detriment to people who are just getting into photography? Do you think it kind of hinders their learning? I think it does a lot. In fact, in some of the colleges and universities, my son went to Ithaca College of Films. He did photography. They have dark rooms, real dark room. And the students are still shooting with film cameras because you kind of learn about the F-stop, shutter speed, 
they like the law photography without a screen in the back of the camera. I'm happy to hear that that's happening. I was afraid that was not going to happen anymore, but there are still photographers that are using darkroom. Not a lot. The percentage is probably, I'm sure, less than you know, five or ten percent. But I think it's important to learn it from the analog perspective. I really do. That's just me. Other people say I'm nuts, but I feel that's the way it should be learned. I noticed you work with the Clintons. There were some other pretty prominent people in, in your repertoire. Billy Crystal, you did some headshots for, is that right? I've actually worked with, uh, I don't call him the president. I shot Donald many years ago. Joe Biden was truly one of my favorite subjects I ever got to photograph and meet. That was really a thrill. But quite honestly, some of my favorite people I've ever photographed are not famous people. They're just people. I once photographed a 95-year-old woman that was in a nursing home who had been a piano teacher, and she told me about life for an hour, and she just blew me away. So, I mean, you don't have to be famous to be... You know, it's funny. People look at photographs. I took a picture of Jerry Seinfeld with my son once at a book signing, and actually it was for Byron. It was a children's book. It was called Halloween. I took a picture of my son with Jerry Seinfeld. My son was about 13, 14 years old. And people say, boy, that's a really great photograph. No, it's not. It's a snapshot. If that was his cousin... Johnny, it wouldn't be a great photograph. Jerry Seinfeld's in it. It's a great photograph. It was an okay photograph. Well, you add an icon to an okay photograph. Does it become great? I don't know. It's a matter of perspective, I guess. I guess, I guess. I mean, you know, I always told my sons, because my sons are in the film, you know, are trying to be in the film business, that remember that Jerry Seinfeld puts his socks on just like you and me. <laughs> And speaking of the film business, I did notice that you're getting a special mention on the movie Dead List. What is, how did that come about? Okay. So my son, Ivan Asen, who's 32 years old, has just sold his first movie with through his business partners. And they sold it to a distribution company who sold it to Amazon Prime. And it's also been sold to a streaming service in South Korea and the Philippines. It's also on DVD. It's a horror movie. It's about an actor that can't get work. So what does he do? He gets rid of the competition. <laughs> I mentioned on IMDb is because he thanked his mother and father and everyone thanked their mother and father <laughs> for putting up with them. So, but I really had nothing to do with the movie. But my son did. That's his first one? First film. He's been in LA for about 10 years. He worked on the uh, Jay Leno show as a page and he worked for production companies, and he had this idea with, with two other guys, and it took him uh, two and a half years. They made it, and they sold it, and it came out April or May 1st. I've probably watched it about 38 times, so four ninety nine a pop. You said it's on Amazon Prime now? Amazon Prime, yes. All of our listeners should know that there's secrets, there's clues about the secret in this movie, <laughs> so you should go out and watch it. <laughs> Well, speaking of The Secret, I'd be remiss. One of our team members, Justin, who's also a photographer, wanted to ask what gear you were using when you shot The Secret, if you remember, and if he wanted to know if you ever played with tilt shift or pinhole photography. I've never played with pinhole photography. I've done some tilt and shift. The cameras they used on that project, I shot with Nikon Fs, Nikon F2s, FTNs, which are the old Nikons, from the movie Blow Up. And uh, I also used uh, a two and a quarter camera that was a Kawa 6, which is not even made anymore. And we shot mostly transparency film. We shot two and a quarter 
in 35 millimeter slide film. Unfortunately, because of the budget uh, uh, of the book, all my beautiful color photographs, uh, most of them, except for the back cover, are in black and white. Oh, so you shot it all in color? All in color. We shot everything in color. Huh. Yeah. It was a budget thing. And, you know, Bantam just said, I guess they said to Byron, this is all we're going to give you. And, you know, in those days, color was much more expensive. Now, of course, you shoot digital, you can convert it to black and white. Right. So let's move on to the section that we're probably the most interested in speaking with you about, which is the man, the myth, the legend, Byron Price. Okay. For the wiki page for Byron, it doesn't say a whole lot. It just says Byron Price, April 11th, 1953 to July 9th, which was only 10 days ago as we tape this, uh, 2005. The 13th anniversary of his death, yeah. Was an American writer, editor, and publisher. He founded and served as president of Byron Price Visual Publications and later of iBooks, Inc., it's not a very auspicious heading for a man who's accomplished as much as he has, in my opinion. Byron went to an Ivy League school. He went to UPenn. He graduated with great honor, went on to get a master's at Stanford in 1972. He was an elementary teacher in 71 and made a comic book with a co-worker and friend. And then a few years later in 74, he formed Byron Price Visual Publications and the rest, as they say, is history. Ben, how did you, let's go back a little bit. How did you know Byron and how, how were you introduced to him? Okay, well, Byron and I, we grew up in Brooklyn uh, in a section of Brooklyn called Flatbush. Uh, it was a great experience, man. I loved growing up there. Byron's parents and my parents were friends. I went to school with a girl in kindergarten who was a cousin of Byron's. Her parents were also friendly with my parents. We lived in the same neighborhood. I lived in an apartment building. But when I was 15 years old, we moved to an old house in Brooklyn, which was a block away from Byron. So now Byron was four years younger than me. So in those days, when you were 11 and a kid was seven, you weren't friendly with them. But I had a brother, Michael, who was friendly with Byron, and they went to school together. They went to elementary school together. They went to middle school together. They weren't super friendly. I actually became much more friendly with Byron than my brother, Michael. So we always knew him, you know, we went to barbecues together and different holidays, we would see him and uh, his mother and my mother went shopping together and, you know, all this stuff that mothers do. Our fathers played golf together and, you know, things like that. So that's really how I knew him. And we really lost touch when Byron went off to college. Of course, he went off to college after I went to college. He did go to the University of Pennsylvania, which I did argue before. And there are so many incredible people that come out of that college, whether it's writers, doctors, lawyers. It's an amazing school. It really is. You know, when Byron was 17 years old, he already was came up with an idea to teach inner city kids how to read with comic books. Byron, if you ever went to Byron's bedroom in his mother or father's house, his bedroom floor was covered in comic books. So he was a comic book junkie from the get-go. Oh, God, was he a comic book junkie. Uh Superman, Batman, uh, Green Lantern, uh, you know, all the action heroes. He loved Superman. And actually, Byron's father was an attorney. His name was Edmund Price. And he actually helped, I don't know the names of the two guys that created Superman, but, you know, they really got screwed royally out of money. Yeah, they did. They did. Byron got his father to take this case, and he actually got these guys some money before they passed away. Fascinating. 
Brian was always upset about that. Like, how could these guys end up with no money? And everyone's making money off Superman, except for the two guys that wrote it. So as a kid, he got his dad to do something about it? He wasn't a kid. He was probably in college by then. Oh, okay. Yeah, and his father took on the case. I think he worked with another attorney, and they got the guy some money. Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. Byron Price's father was the lawyer for, for Siegel and Schuster? No, he was not the lawyer for Siegel and Schuster. Oh, okay. But he got his father to speak to Siegel and Schuster. He took a case on, and he got him some money. Wow, that's that's crazy. It's such a big, big story in the comic book world, too. And to think that Byron Price's father had played a part in that's it. That's awesome. And, you know, Byron really loved comics. When my kids were young and Byron's were young, we would... He once drove us to uh, Connecticut. There's a comic book museum off, I think, uh, Interstate 95. And we spent about five hours there. And he was always, whenever Byron came to visit us, whenever we hung out together with my kids and his kids, he always brought both my sons a comic book. <laughs> Byron's philosophy is kids should read. No matter what they read, they need to read. And if comics is the way to get into reading, that's great. It's pretty cool. He did kind of an anti-drug comic book back in 71. and that that's... Firing until he passed away was incredibly anti-drug. He never did anything. He didn't even drink that much. He and a guy named Rick Steranko, I think his name was, Rick Steranko, who was a comic book writer and illustrator, they ended up doing a comic book together for the inner city kids about not taking heroin, not doing drugs, and it became a pretty successful comic book. No idea if it's around anymore. I have no idea. Rick actually spoke at his funeral. You said that when Byron went off to college, you kind of lost track. And that, how did you reconnect after that? I got to tell you, uh, one day uh, I was uh, living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan at the time, and I got a phone call. It was Byron. And he said something like, you know, our dad saw each other at synagogue. It was one of the holidays, and I didn't go. And Byron was there, and he said, oh, you should call Ben. You know, Ben's a photographer now, and you're you know, trying to be a book publisher, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he called me. We got together, and it's like all of a sudden we became these really good friends because as kids we weren't that friendly. I mean, we knew each other. He a lot, but he was four years younger. And, you know, when you're younger, four years is, is a lot of years. When you're older, yeah, four years is nothing. I have friends that are 15 years older than me now. I don't even think about it. And he told me he was starting a publishing company. And, you know, maybe down the line uh, we could do some work together. I think the first book project I actually did for him was a book on the Beach Boys. Byron was a huge Beach Boy fan. He was a Beach Boys fan. Yes, and he actually spent a couple of months with the Beach Boys in, I think at the University of Iowa, there's a meditation center. And, you know, the Beach Boys are really into meditation. Byron was not into meditation, but he got to interview the Beach Boys, and then he ended up doing this ridiculous book on the Beach Boys. Uh, Joe Ellen uh, did some of the soft sculptures of the Beach Boys, and I photographed some of the sculptures. Uh, that was the first project I did for Byron. This story just keeps getting more incredible as we go. This is a fantastic you did some projects before The Secret. Do you ever remember him talking about a treasure hunt or doing anything like this before he actually did it? Did he keep it under wraps until it was time to do it? Did, did he discuss it with you? Or? No. As far as I know, I can't say whether he talked to uh, anyone about it, but he didn't talk to me about it. And when he brought me into the project and Trevor swanked me, I said, what? <laughs> I still don't know. I mean, quite honestly, it's how many years later and... 
I'm still not sure what that book's about. Right. <laughs> yeah, join join the club. Yeah, really. <laughs> right. You're not alone. When we spoke to Joellen about some of the photo shoots, she had some funny and interesting stories about them, specifically some things about Henny Youngman and Monty Irvin and another time when she thought one of the actors was a vagrant. What do you recall about some of those photo shoots back then? Do you, can you remember what was going on? In the old days, I was a big baseball fan. I'm not a big baseball fan anymore. I think they all make too much money. By the way, it's called playing baseball, not working baseball. Anyway, um, <laughs> Byron wanted to get Willie Mays, but, you know, that was, like, impossible, okay? So we got Monty Urban, and I said, great. Monty Urban knows he's a great baseball player. We did this in Byron's apartment. He had a little duplex, uh, one-bedroom apartment on the east side. Joellen came. She brought this baseball fairy with these wings on it. It was like unbelievable. And the Urban walked in with in a you know in a suit. I think he was working for Major League Baseball, so like as an announcer or something. No, he was working uh, either in diversity or HR. Very nice man, a real gentleman. So we tried to explain to him what we were going to do, and I, I think he felt like. What the hell am I doing here? <laughs> Byron always had a way of convincing people. But the funny thing is, is that there was a, a delegatessen around the corner. Byron ordered in a couple of pastrami and corned beef sandwiches. And we, after the photo shoot, we sat around eating corned beef and pastrami with Monty Urban. And I was asked a lot of questions about baseball. It was a great experience for me. I can't say it was a great experience for Monty Urban, but... <laughs> Very, very nice. But the Henny Youngman story, that's the one that uh, Byron was a member of the Friars Club, which is, you know, a pretty well-known entertainment organization. You know, a lot of actors and comedians. And we used to go there with Byron and his wife and my wife and my kids went to Halloween parties. So we said, oh, we're going to shoot Henny Youngman with the joke fairy for the book. <laughs> and we're going to do it at the Friars Club. And... I got there early. I scattered out this room and had a big wing chair with big arms on it. I said, let's shoot Henny Youngman here. So Henny Youngman comes in and he's, and he's Henny Youngman. He's just rattled off one joke after another. I sit him in the chair. I tell him what I want him to do. I start shooting away. And all of a sudden he goes, okay, I'm done. Byron, where's my check? <laughs> Never forget that. I think he paid him a hundred dollars. <laughs> Oh my God. How, how long did he actually sit in the chair? He sat there for about 15 minutes or so. Okay. He must have told about, I don't know, how many jokes. And I tried to call my father that night. You know, I just couldn't remember most of the jokes, even though they were so funny. My father was like, what? You got to shoot any young man. How great is that? Uh, <laughs> he did say, take my wife a couple of times. So. Anyway, that was really a lot of fun. But, you know, with the sculptures, we had so many. I was sort of, I'd only been married about a year. And Byron started saying to me, you know, we need to shoot these sculptures in other cities. Right. I was going to ask you about that. I noticed that some of, they're not all in New York City. We did find a couple of the places, Columbus Circle and some other things. But, yeah, there's there's some, they're all over the place. There's some in Chicago, right? San Fran? San Francisco, Chicago. We went to Washington, D.C. We shot the... Um, I forget what that sculpture is called, the one with the eagle with the two heads. Oh, yeah, it's called the left-wing simp and the right-wing trog. It was an eagle with two heads. I said to Byron, my wife and I are going out to Washington for the weekend. He said, you're taking that with you. 
You're going to shoot this in Washington, D.C. So we went to the Capitol. We went to the front lawn of the Capitol, which is not where the steps of the Capitol is. It's like the back of the Capitol. Right. Put it down, and I used a flash because even though it was sunny, I wanted to make the picture pop. The color was beautiful, and it's really unfortunate that it's in black and white. And a few people stopped this and answered what we we're doing. I just said, I'm, I'm shooting this thing for a book project. I didn't tell them what it was about because I was told them to do. Could you imagine me taking that sculpture to the Capitol now and taking that photograph? Oh, you'd be done now. Never. No way. They would have confiscated the sculpture. Right. They would have confiscated you. They would have confiscated me. <laughs> That's right. That's hysterical. It was really pretty funny. We went to Florida. We went to Florida to a place called Kendall. My uncle owned some property out there. It was undeveloped land, and we shot some things out there. There's a picture. It's the preppy something. It's it's the alligator. It's an alligator. Okay. <laughs> like a Lacoste alligator. Oh, right. I remember that one. We shot out for Brooks Brothers. There's a picture of a very pretty woman's legs. She's wearing shorts and shoes. That's actually my wife. Joel and Ed mentioned that uh, Byron's arm is in a few shots. and, and... Byron's arm's in a couple. We uh, shot the, the Chin Rummy. We shot him in an alleyway. He was an actor. Actually, I found him. I was doing a lot of headshots in those days, you know, of actors on the Upper West Side. And I met this guy. I, I don't even remember his name. It's so long ago. And I said, you know, we're doing a book. We no money to pay you. He said, I'll do it. And we took him to an alleyway, a dark alleyway at night down in Chinatown. And uh, I think by him, I think we paid him in dumplings. Ben, a prep school on page 52, uh, 62, that's your wife with an alligator? My wife's legs. And let me tell you. Uh, he's hysterical. He looks the same now. <laughs> that is hysterical. The gin rummy must have been the one where Joellen was a uh, where she thought the uh, actor was the was the actual vagrant. No, he was not an actual vagrant. No. The force of makeup, he, he came down, he was filthy dirty, and we shot him. It was great. There's the uh, there's this, uh, the sweat stiffs, which we shot actually in, in L.A. Uh, along uh, the main street there in Santa Monica with all the palm trees in the background. It's like uh, we shot that. And in San Francisco, we shot stuff on my friend's back porch. We really went all over it. The one that I'd like a lot is the one that Joe Pellin, it was sort of a, a takeoff on Robert Morley. It's the Unreal Estate Brokers. Yes. This woman sitting, it's actually a man in drag. It's actually Robert Morley. I think it's based on Robert Morley because she did a Robert Morley sculpture for, I believe, it's the 25th anniversary uh, Playboy magazine, and actually Marlon Brando was the uh, interview that month, and I shot them. I actually shot the Robert Morley for her. But anyway, my uncle had land out in Kendall, which is near Miami. We shot that sculpture there. I put it in a carry bag, went on the plane with it. But you know, in those days, there was no metal. <laughs> you just walked on. You know, you just walked on with these sculptures. I mean, nobody asked you. <laughs> so wait a minute. There's something a little mysterious going on here. It seems like you went to a lot of locations, but yet the book was still in black and white. That's right. So <laughs> did the trips put it over budget? Could we have had color photos, Ben, if you just didn't go to Miami that one last time? 
I, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I took, I'm gonna, not going to talk about how much I got paid or anything, but I actually took I took money up front. I decided I wasn't going to go with percentage. <laughs> and I just said, you know, it's I love Byron. You know, we were very good friends. I said, listen, whatever it takes to do it. There's the one of the small businessman. It's on the steps of 60 Center Street where whenever you see somebody get indicted, they're always, you know, walking down the steps. Right. That picture was based on a very famous attorney who sued everybody. I can't remember his name, but there had been a picture in the paper of him running down those steps in the Daily News. <laughs> based on that photograph, Joel and Bates sculpture, and I said to Byron, we're going to go back to 60 Center Street. We went there during the week, and they would not let us shoot there. So we went back on a Saturday or Sunday when no one was around, you know, listen, there were no surveillance cameras in 1981. You know, it was a different world. This stuff has been a lot more difficult to do now, I think. I kind of like those pictures. I, I like the one of the guy where he's standing, looking out, and, there's a, and the sun's coming, and there's a long shadow, and, um, and it was all shot in color. You helped pick some of these locations, or did Byron pick all of these locations? I gave Byron a lot of suggestions. Uh, in fact, um, the Philharmonic Orc uh, on page 103. I knew a woman by the name of Margot Sappington, who was the choreographer of the famous musical O Calcutta, which was a pornographic uh, yes. Broadway musical many years ago. And Margot's husband was an actor, and he had access to city center. I shot those pictures on the stage and in the seats of the city center where. Alvin Alley Dance Company performs, and wow, yeah, it was you know, that was a lot of fun. And the great thing about that is that when Joe Ellen made that sculpture, he came up with the idea right away. The conductor, his teeth are piano keys. Yeah, piano keys. <laughs> I still have all the color pictures. I have all the transparencies. Ah, uh, wow. Perhaps you could scan a couple of them and we could uh, show them to the folks at home who are listening and watching. Maybe we'll do that down the line, Tripp. That would be a, a really wonderful idea. I'd like to do that. Speaking of the book, it seems like the creation of the book itself was only loosely directed by Byron. Joellen said the work sort of unfolded as she got the pages from Sean Kelly and Ted Mann. Is this how the characters in the story were created, sort of, by the social experiment of putting a bunch of talented people together and seeing what came out of it? Or did Byron kind of, did he direct this project more than we know? Well, he directed it a lot, but I, I have to tell you, I really can't answer that question. Uh, you know, the two writers were Sean Kelly and Ted Mann. They were from National Lampoon, and, you know, Byron wrote for National Lampoon. He did a comic strip for them. I don't know how much they even had to do with it, but I'll tell you, the illustrators, John Palancard, John Parade, Overton Lloyd, these guys were brilliant. Byron spent a lot of time with them discussing what he wanted in the illustrations. The game itself was all Byron, right? Yes, as far as I know, it was all Byron. After the Chicago cask was found in, in the 80s, some time went by, then just nothing kind of happened, and Byron seemed to go on with his own life and his publishing career. And uh, up until uh, Andy here and Brian found the one in 2004, nothing really happened. Now, you guys were friends during that period. Did he ever lament to you about 
regretting that the book never did better or was he was he happy with what happened what did he regret it did he ever say anything about it i don't think he regretted it i do remember once we're having a talk and we didn't talk about the maybe we talked about the book a few times over the years he he said boy he said i really did a great job finding those things nobody <laughs> has found any but you know byron it's, the funny thing about that is is that Byron used to lose things all the time. <laughs> not, not the Beach Boy book. I had to get a meet by and prints for the book. I gave him the pictures. He was at his desk. And three weeks later, I said, Ben, I can't find the pictures. <laughs> all right, Byron, I'll make you new pictures. So I go to his office. I give him the pictures. Desk is piled up with stuff. I mean, I, I don't want to say junk, but paper, a lot of paper. And he went up to the bathroom, and I'm sitting at his desk, and I'm looking under a pile of papers. And under that pile of papers, I recognized an envelope. And I, <laughs> oh my God, Iron, these are the original photographs. I can't believe I didn't see them. <laughs> it's funny because Andy, when you and Brian went and met him and got the gem from him in, in 2004, didn't Brian or you describe him kind of like having this absent-minded professor kind of air to him? It's one of the first things that jumped out at us. It was, uh, you're, you're telling that story, Ben, and that was exactly the way he appeared when we met him that day. It's so funny. Even when we went to the safe deposit box, that he took out the jewel. He, uh, and I, I think we told the story, but we showed up at the bank and he was like an excited kid and he goes into the safe deposit but he goes, boy, I haven't been down here in a long time. And he's sifting through and the things he's tossing aside, oh, here's this, here's that. He goes, oh, here, look at this, uh, uh, um, bonds. He didn't only have bonds in the box. I think he made more money that day than we did. He just kept finding things that he had no idea that he knew were there. And Brian said he's like an absent-minded professor. Is that bank in New York you're talking yes. about? Yes, 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 yes. We went to the bank in New York. I've never tried to find the treasures. I do have a hunch. I would find it hard to believe that there isn't one of these jewels that is buried in Brooklyn. There has to be one in Brooklyn. I don't care what the writing is in the book. There has to be one in Brooklyn. He loved Brooklyn. There is a specific verse and image that we a tribute to New York. And there's kind of a clue, a nod to George Gershwin in there. And we had seen on a few interviews with his daughters, and I think maybe Sandy was in on it too, that mentioned that he was a big George Gershwin fan. Can, would you concur with that? I, I'm a big George Gershwin fan. I, I can't actually, because I don't, I don't know if we've even spoken about George Gershwin together. Right. Now, if it was a comic book, that'd be an easier answer. You know, I don't think he did a comic of George Gershwin, but boy, what a great comic been. Classic comic of George Gershwin. No, we never spoke about it, but is Gershwin from Brooklyn? I always thought Gershwin was from Manhattan. He was born in Brooklyn, but he lived in Manhattan. He was born, born in Brooklyn. Okay. Okay. All right. I know we didn't go to Midwood High School where Byron and I went because Midwood wasn't built yet. Midwood wasn't built in 1945, so I know it wasn't there. Uh, but I still have a feeling, and I 
that something's buried in Brooklyn, and I have an idea where it might be, but I, I, I've never said it to anyone. We, we, may, we may cut that from the, uh, the podcast, unless you want your email box to contain about 30 or 40 emails a week. Yeah, you will get lots of messages now. No, I know. I said Staten Island. <laughs> it's interesting because I spent the day in Brooklyn with his two daughters, Kara and Blam. Yes, they were so nice. They walked me around Brooklyn. We went to, I'm wondering now if that was the street you're talking about. We we went back to where, I thought they said where he was born. Wasn't far from Prospect Park, I remember. That's right. Uh, we, we, is that the old neighborhood you were talking about? Because they showed up in the house. Was it a wooden house? Yes. That's where he grew up. I don't know when they moved in there. I'm not sure. Maybe he was born in a hospital and just went right to that house. They said this was their father. They never lived there, the girls, but they said this is where their father grew up. It was within a stone's throw almost of Prospect Park. And I remember walking around Prospect Park with them that day because they also felt like, how could it not be that he would have put something here in Brooklyn because this was where he was. This is where he grew up. They shared your, your same type of theory that it just made so much sense that he would have done something in Brooklyn. You guys are going to make one person online very happy because there's one person in New York who is convinced it's Prospect Park, and she is about to go nuts when she hears this. I can't believe there's not one buried in Brooklyn. Yeah. When the book came out, did you pick it up and look at it and try and figure out what was going on in it? No. (laughs) (laughs) That was a wise choice. I got my 500 bucks and I'm out of here. This is what I did. I went to every bookstore where it was. We pulled them out halfway. <laughs> Bookstores now have, they put their books they, and the cover space out. That's what I did. <laughs> I never looked for the treasure. I, I don't even see why. I don't know why. I just never did. Um, uh, so it just, that wasn't what appealed to me about the book. To me, the book, to me, was just the experience with Joe Ellen and Byron going out and photographing these soft sculptures. I always wish, because Byron loved videotaping everything. He would videotape my kids, his kids. When we got together, he had a house along Long Island. We brought that to the weekend. He'd always been videotaping. If there had been VHS when we did this... Ah, uh, would have been great. Oh, my God. No, he would have been everything. I don't remember where I heard it online somewhere that... Uh, there was a promotional video made for the book itself. Do you recall anything like this? No, I really don't. I think if there was, I would I would have remembered that. I, I, I don't think there was, but I, I could be wrong. I mean, but I never saw it. I never saw it. When you talk to artists, when you talk to writers, they always kind of say the same thing, that, that publishers are, are horrible, that they're monsters. But everything that you hear about people who work for Byron, they talk about it's not like a job that you have. It's just kind of like a group of friends getting together and sort of seeing what comes out of that. He loved helping people. If you were a young graphic designer, a young photographer, a young writer, he always gave you a shot. He always gave you a shot. He took in kids as eight turns and for the learning turns. He was, you know, kids in high school would come and work in his office. Uh, he loved helping people. He did not have a mean bone in his body. Do you know if he was married to Sandy uh, before or after the book came out? I think it was after the book. I think they got married in 82 or 83, if I'm not mistaken. I got married in 80. Yeah, I think 
I think they got married even maybe 84. Definitely was not when the book came out. They were not. It was after them. Okay. You remain friends all the way up through? Until uh... his death. Yeah, you know, we were like best friends. We did a lot of stuff together. What do you think you would think about this? This is what 30 some odd years later after this book's been published. It's still sort of going strong. It's still got this cult following. People are still following it. People are still trying to work it out. What do you think he would think about this? I think he would embrace it. This is what Byron was all about. He loves things like this. I mean, God, this book 40 years later and people still look <laughs> What publisher, what writer, what author wouldn't wouldn't want this to happen? Right. Uh, Talking about it, I mean, you know, it's it's incredible. I mean, it really is incredible. He would have embraced it and he would have, I don't know, maybe he would have done a second book. Who knows? Well, it seemed like that was the intention. I mean, since all the hoopla has happened, have you been um, getting any strange emails or calls? I have gotten a couple of uh, messengers on Facebook and a couple of emails. Everyone calls me Mr. Asit, which really bothers the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> of the book is sold a long ago. They probably think I'm in a rocky chair or something. I don't know. Uh, uh, I, go to, go to, I go to the gym like four days a week. I'm in pretty good shape. But if people ask me questions, I there's something weird about how they contacted me. I have just decided not to contact. Uh, there's one guy that uh, I uh, he I think he either works at Georgetown College at or is a student there or a professor. He contacted me. I said, sure, give me a call. He's never called me, so I don't know. Yeah, I'm very excited that you found that one. Tr it's fantastic, and that was in 2004, right? 2004. It's great that you did it before Brian passed away. And that was probably the most amazing part, right? Because my friend who had been doing it, he went to UPenn also. Yeah. He was obsessed with the book. And 20 years later, we were working at a law firm together, and he got me involved. And we always say that. The timing of it was it had to be so perfect because to find it and then to get the chance to meet him and spend an afternoon having lunch and talking that was the thrill. I mean, the, the find was great, but if it had been different, it's a very small world. The day he passed away, uh, I was talking to my college roommate's wife, and she said she's going to pay a shiver call that night. And I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear it. And I said, what happened? She said, oh, a friend of mine I used to work with publishing, uh, her husband died. And I just heard that Byron Price, the author of this book, The Secret of Died, it turns out her very good friend was Byron's wife. I mean, in such a small world, they said, that's the guy who wrote the book that I ran to Cleveland years ago, uh, last year to, to go find. So had it happened differently and we had found it after his passing, I think it wouldn't have meant as much. It was just such a thrill to go in. And even for him, when he came out, here he comes out in this, you know, in a suit and tie and always a suit and tie, in a suit and tie, very, you know, dapper looking but he walks out and the little kid in him came out because i think i mean he started taking pictures with us because he wanted to send to his wife and he started to tell us how oh she thought it was crazy when i go running around with my shovel and he was excited that years later somebody had found one and it come to him it was kind of thrilling for him too it really was fun that's the kid in byron yeah. And guys, it always worked that when you look at page 48 that fantastic shot that you guys took it's one of the color pictures. I have to know 
I don't know if you remember where it was taken, not that it matters for the search, but how did you set that shot up? How long did it take? It must have been unbelievable. Not as long as I would have liked to spend, I can tell you that. Uh, <laughs> on Riverside Drive, the Veterans Memorial, it's not Grant's tomb. I think it's the Veterans Memorial. Okay. I forgot what street. It's either in the high 80s or 90s. I think Grant's tomb is up a little bit higher. Yes. That's where we shot it, and... Uh, we brought all the sculptures out there. It was me, Byron, and uh, Joe Ellen. I don't think anyone else was with us. That color shot is really, really poorly reproduced. That's all I can say. Ah, so thank you, Bantam. <laughs> wow, but set, I mean, you guys must have had so much fun. Were there people around watching you set out? Yeah, it must have been crazy. Absolutely crazy. In fact, it was a little bit annoying because, you know, I'm trying to get this shot done. We don't have a lot of time. I mean, I did a pet.com book, which is another podcast, with uh, about the sock puppet, and we photographed this puppet with dogs in Greenwich Village, and we found we always had people stopping us and talking to us about the, you know, about the sock puppet and the dogs. So, I mean, uh, that one in particular that struck me because I, I figure she must have taken one or two of these figurines with her each photo shoot. But for this one, I mean, you must have had 25 of them in one spot. It's just so amazing. And it was also very cold out. Uh, it was only a few days after we shot the, um, that woman in a black dress in the snow. I can't remember what it's, I know what age it's on. Orontagra on page 163. That's in Central Park. Wow, reality. There was a snowstorm the day before, and I actually called Byron because I had seen the sculpture. I said, you know, Byron, this would look great in the snow. Oh, that's awesome. So we took it out and we did it in the snow. Page 55 shows the key black and white with the fairy figure. Do you remember where that was shot? It was just in a in a in my field. It's a great yeah. picture. Uh, probably Central Park. We get a lot of stuff at Central Park. You did, yeah. I, the the one on page sixty seven, the pilgrim, oh, that of the statue. That's over by the um. That's by the entrance to Central Park on Columbus, isn't it? That's exactly right. Oh, you guys must have walked through Central Park and had a field all day. Well, yeah, shots. You know, that's the great thing about shooting in New York City. Uh, there's plenty of places to shoot. Yeah, so we shot that there. Yeah. I got two more for you that I always wondered about. The one on, where is she? The Spirit of 76 on page 148, 149. That is from the Staten Island Ferry, right? Oh, yes. Oh, oh yeah. That one. In fact, I was talking to Joellen this afternoon about that picture. And I said, wow, the Allen is the World Training Center. This was the World Training Center, right. This was 20 years before 9-11. Right. I mean, I, I remember sitting in Staten Island Ferry one day, and I was sitting in those wooden seats, and I said, wait a second, this is that picture. I went back and I checked the book, and then I saw the shot of her pose with this Twin Towers behind it. I mean, how crazy is it that you got that shot? It's just fantastic. Actually... That wasn't even supposed to be shot like that. But what happened was we were going out towards Staten Island and we were standing there. I said, Byron, why don't we take a picture of the sculpture here? He said, yeah, but let's do it afterwards because I want to make sure it doesn't fall into the water. <laughs> that would have been a quick end to the shoot. I have one thing I do have to say to you that on eBay right now with one hour and 28 minutes left, one of the original paperbacks is 16 bids at $401. That's a guy from our Facebook page. Him and his wife are going to Laos for uh, some sort of Doctors Without Borders type 
thing. He's using that to raise money. I have one more for you. Page 144. And you guys, uh, I'm sorry, you, you guys probably already know this because these are some of the smartest guys who ever worked on this treasure hunt. But on the bottom of page 144, the cannon that's pictured on the bottom of page 144, the woolly bully. I think that's in Long Island. Oh, I thought. It's not a St. Augustine game. It's not. Okay, well, St. No. George, you would know that. That was shot somewhere on Long Island. I can't remember where. It might have been on the North Shore, maybe like around Oyster Bay. or Yes, it was Oyster Bay, because you know what? Because Teddy Roosevelt's house. Oh, yes. Well, that's so cool. I just remember that, and I've been to that house a couple of That's a great house tour. That's better than Hyde Park any day. That was shot in Oyster Bay. Byron and I, uh, we you know, we took drives. We, you know, Byron said, all right, we're going to go out to Long Island and shoot this picture. And that's what we did. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. The creativity that we went to. Just amazing. We were looking at one of the photos that's a... Uh photo of a newsstand and we were able to, to use the covers of the magazines to date when the photo was taken down to the week how close to the publication date did you guys were you still taking pictures was it kind of down to the wire like we have to get this in now i know it took another like at least three four months before that book came out at least it was a few months but i felt that was like a really short time in publishing but i'm not a publisher so i don't i kind of remember that newsstand was not too far from where Byron lived on the Upper East Side. You're talking about page 117, the Phantasmaglory. That's right. Yes, yes, that's it. You know, I did a few in black and white towards the end because Byron already told me that they had made a decision. These pictures were going to be done in black and white. Well, Ben, you know, we uh, spent too much money on the Florida and D.C. trips. The book is going to have to be in black and white. <laughs> really sorry. <laughs> hey. Right, so it's my fault. Look, they blame out. Ben, do you have one? I mean, that one you talked about from Central Park, the, the Tonta Torg, how you pronounce it, in the snow, is such a stunning picture. Do you have one that was a particular favorite, either because of the way you shot it or because of the story associated with it? Well, that is one of my favorites, actually. I mean, I had a lot of favorites. I like the Philomonic Orc because never been in city center and got to be stage. And we had this thing like peering out behind the curtain. And they had the curtain guy there would like pull the curtain for us. He let me pull the curtain once and now that, right. that's kind of like an incredible experience. Really, it, it, that was really uh, just a lot of fun. That one's on page 104. I'm looking at it right now. Behind the curtain, that is an awesome shot. <laughs> of all the pictures in the book, only because I'm so political and we're going through such an awful time in America and the world, not just America. That left wing and right wing trog. There's something that's so timely about that photograph. I don't want to go into it any further than that, but I kind of wish I could put this picture into the right now. That is still, I'm looking at it right now, page 140. 139, yeah. Oh, right, 139 in front of the Capitol, of course. Oh, my God. In front of the Capitol, yeah. I actually forgot that. I don't know why, you know, why did they run that picture twice? Kind of silly. Uh, anyway, I guess they needed, they had a blank piece of paper and they needed to fill it up. Because <laughs> it was a great one. Come on, that is fantastic. But you know, the illustrators, the illustrations are just incredible. It's not just my photograph. Those illustrators were brilliant. We would love to talk to Mr. Palancar or, you know, I don't know if I should call him Mr. People get offended, but... <laughs> Or Mr. Perard, either one of those guys. I, I think people bother uh, John Palancar quite a bit. Yeah, Palancar was the uh, in that on that film, uh, the one that was on the uh, on the travel station. Yeah, Andy was on that too. I'll tell you, it was kind of creepy seeing some actor playing Byron. I think it was great that you were able to come on and give us some 
much needed backstory on Byron because there's just very little out there. There's the few things that we have from the press pieces he did on the book for the two found casks, but that's really about it. We don't know too much more about the guy, and I think you were able to shed some light on who he was as a person, which is great. He loved kids. He loved getting kids to read. That was like a big thing in his life. It really was. He did so many books for kids. I mean, uh, and, you know, he did the first CD-ROM books. He did it before Kindle was around, that's for sure. He was doing books on C- I mean, one of the first books he did was with Jerry Seinfeld. He did a Jerry Seinfeld book on a CD. I know he was doing the, the Choose Your Own Adventure books. I did a lot of those when I was a kid. Uh, he was definitely ahead of his time. There was I saw a picture with him sitting at a computer with uh, Arthur C. Clarke back in the 70s. That's my picture. Oh, you took that? Wow. We actually, yeah. The first time I met Arthur C. Clarke was in a room at the Waldorf Astoria. <laughs> God. Uh, well, you're going to have to tell us this one. I can't let you go without hearing uh, So uh, Byron was doing a book, and he needed, uh, you know, with Arthur C. Clarke, I forgot the name of the book, he needed an author shot, very low budget, called Ben Asen, very low budget. <laughs> I like Roger Corman, you know? It's like, he said, all right, so we're going to go to uh, his hotel room. I go, great. He says, we're going to the Waldorf story. He's at the Waldorf. I go, all right, the Waldorf. Spent about 20 minutes with the guy. He was very, very nice. I actually photographed for Byron Isaac Asimov for a book the day after the space shuttle, not the, the um, remember the, the space shuttle launch where the astronauts were killed? The Challenger. Oh, with the teacher. Yeah, yeah. We actually uh, did that. And Isaac Asimov uh, was very nice, but he was very down that day. And it turned out he went to the same high school as my uncle and my dad. And when I told him that, he said, well, what year did your father graduate? And I told him, and he went up, he got his yearbook, and when he brought it down, my uncle was in the picture next to Isaac Asimov. Oh, my God. Come on. Asin <laughs> and Asimov. Now, what is going on with these connections here? Byron was running with some of the troubadours. I mean, he's worked for National Lampoon. These were the people that created entertainment in the 70s. He's hanging out with Arthur C. Clarke. Isaac Asimov, he's got Monty Irvin in his apartment. I mean, what was really going on here with you guys? When I called my uncle to say, you know, I photographed Isaac Asimov, I never knew you high school together. My uncle he came back and said, well, you never asked me. <laughs> <laughs> they were right next to each other in the yearbook. Think about that. Asimov and Asim, that's amazing. And they barely knew each other. Unbelievable. Barely knew each other. And just real quickly, you would say that Byron had a pretty good understanding of what computers were going to turn into as far as where we are with the internet right now. Did he have, he ever talked to you about that? Oh yeah. I mean, he helped me pick out my first computer. It was a gateway, gateway 2000. Those aren't even around anymore. And within six months after I got that computer, he was giving me all these CD-ROMs for my kids. You know, uh, remember the CD-ROMs, Carmen San Diego? Oh yeah, absolutely. Carmen San Diego. Well, all those, he didn't do that, but he was trying to tell me that this is the way kids were going to learn through computers. And I said, he's crazy. Anyway, <laughs> obviously he was right. I was wrong. We're curious. There's some people who maintain uh, in regards to the treasure hunt that since it was made in 1981, that it wasn't intended that people working on the hunt would discuss or talk to each other. They wouldn't even know who they were. And, and I maintain that 
he had a very good understanding of what computers were going to do and what the internet would become. And so it's been a debate for a while among some of us older searchers as to what his intentions were as far as people being able to communicate with each other who were working on this as it is now. It's hard to believe that in 1985, 86, when the first computers were, when people were buying the first computers, that anybody knew that there'd be a Google search engine. But if anybody knew it was going to happen, it would be Byron. <laughs> and by the way, the book's still at $401 with uh, an hour and 16 minutes left. Oh, just wait. It'll, it'll get sniped. Yeah, those books have been going for quite a, a bit of money lately, the original ones. And it's you think the black and white was bad. Have you seen the repress of the book? Brendan reviews on Amazon, and they're pretty horrendous. They're not good. You would not be proud of your, of your work being in it. You know, I once actually born a copy of the book from a homeless person. What? There was a guy in the street selling books like 20 years ago. Come on. He was selling the secret. I said, oh, great. I'm on. I'm now being soaked. I bought it for $2. <laughs> that was a really good investment. He asked for a dollar. I gave him $2. You didn't want to demean your work. I didn't even say to her. I wish that had something to do with the book. I just, I said, oh, what an interesting book. I think I'll buy it. But I have like six copies. I can only find one copy. If you ever want to take a little vacation, you got some seed money there. Maybe I could do a book on finding the copies of the book. <laughs> And I have one other. I have one other question for you, just because you brought it up, and I, as a personal question. So, when you were talking about the, that television show, the Expedition Unknown, and you had kind of a, a sad tone in your voice, like you, you felt it wasn't done well. Did you know it was coming out? Did you not like it? Did you think it was portrayed badly? What were your thoughts on that? Did not know it was coming out, and a few days before it came out, Sandy told me. So I said, "All right, I'll take a look." My wife and I, we sat down, we watched it, and. I just didn't like the way it was done. I didn't like the interview with the girls. They were saying things that I don't even know how they could know this because they were so young when the book, they weren't even born when the book came out. Right. And they're two very bright girls. I mean, Kara is a filmmaker now too, and Blair works for a big talent agent, I think. I think Byron would be incredibly, incredibly proud of that right now. They really do. Well, I didn't think about it from the perspective of someone who was one of his best friends. That must have been hard to watch. And I guess when you said seeing him portrayed by someone I don't know if it cheapened it or it just felt bad to watch. I will say that I thought it had its most enduring quality in that a lot of people paid attention to it. And when you think about, I mean, I wound up talking to the daughters I got afterwards and they were excited to see their father. It seemed like anyone would talk to Kara to see their father's work put out there again, because it does always come back to this for me that here's a bunch of grown men. I mean, I'm 51. And we're spending a night talking about uh, Byron and the treasure hunt and this childlike quality that goes along with it. And it fits in perfectly, whether he wanted to help people learn to read or he wanted adults to stay in touch with that childlike quality themselves. There is something so magical about it that I think transcends. And I, I appreciated the show for that more than anything, that it opened up the work to a bunch of other people who got to see it might not have known about. I have to agree with that. I just, I didn't like the actor who portrayed Byron. He, he just was nothing like Byron. <laughs> Woody Allen, maybe. You know, someone who's like, a, you know, who's an absent-minded actor. And he just- That's such a great call. That's the good question. Who would you have cast for that role? Okay, so it, I'm trying to think, you know, like maybe if, uh, 
I don't know, like if Jason Alexander was like a little thinner and <laughs> <laughs> or if Michael Ritchie was shorter and a little heavier. Oh, that's so funny. I can't think of any actor right now offhand that can play. I'm sure if I, I'll probably think of it later, but I was just, I just said they didn't do any research on the kind of person he was. Because no, they didn't. Not, they didn't too. It's like, it's like getting Brad Pitt to play Woody Allen. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's the only analogy I could think of right now, but it's just. Didn't capture his essence. Yeah, exactly. No, it seemed like a very rushed kind of a puff piece that they did. They didn't take a lot of time to go over. Exactly. Um, how, how everything worked, and and I think it left people interested, but not really knowing really what was going on. Still, right. like they knew about it, but they, the the series didn't kind of tell them any more than they knew coming into it. Just that it was, it just told them that they were interested in it. I guess. Yeah. No, but when you think about it, though, guys, right? Like even here, we're talking to Ben. You could go through every picture in this book and tell a story attached to every picture that would thrill the three of us just to hear and you would oh my god i remember just like when you said i remember being oh teddy roosevelt right lived that like it's so exciting and to even try to capture the essence of what took place here in 44 minutes with commercials right so it's impossible it's impossible so it was peripheral i mean it was very servicey i'm happy that it did i was walking in court today and somebody came up to me and said what's your question and said we're you're that are you that treasure hunter i almost fell over laughing i guess they had shown the rerun of the show last week or something two weeks ago and i said okay and i thought no i'm your public defender but yes i'm also <laughs> i am also that treasure he had more faith in me after knowing that than he had when i first took the case so now that you know you're a public defender i think byron would be like that more that's when it's to hear well ben Thank you for joining us today. Is there a website that people can check out your work at? www.benasonasu.com. I'd like to thank Andy Abrams for taking the time to join us tonight. It's always fun to have him on. And a special thanks again to Ben Ason for sharing some history about Byron Price and his involvement with the book. That does it for this episode. Please search for and like our Facebook page, The Secret Podcast, and feel free to participate in our city groups. You can find this podcast as well as the rest of the series at www.the-number-12 and then the word treasures.com, www.12treasures.com. You can stay up to date on information on all of these sites. Uh, we air podcast news. We even share outtakes from the shows and a lot of inside group info on there from time to time as well. On behalf of George Ward, I'm John Michaels. You take care now. Tune in next time for another edition of The Secret Podcast with your hosts, J.M. and Bernstein. Available on iTunes. Let's get the beat.